This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Mountains of Mecca bear witness that I 
To the oneness of Allah do I testify For all that He's given me how can I deny My purpose in life should be only to cry La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah There is no God but Allah Muhammad is his messenger La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah There is no God but Allah Muhammad is his messenger الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه Brothers and sisters in Islam السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Today we continue our journey about the great four imams and we have already covered in brief in very brief information about Imam Abu Hanifa Al-Imam Al-A'zam as they used to call him the great Imam and today insha'Allah we are going to begin again a very brief summary of his life we only have a very short time to do it in of Imam Malik Ibn Anas another giant from the giants of the scholars of Islam I'd like to clarify two things from last week's topic I mentioned that Abu Hanifa sat in one of the classes of Imam Malik when Imam Malik was only 13 years old. I'd like to correct that by saying that Imam Malik was not 13 years old at the time. He was 13 years younger than Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Malik began his circles of knowledge and he actually became at the qualification of a mufti Mushtahid, one who can actually look at Qur'an and Hadith by themselves raw and bring out new verdicts, new rulings for very new circumstances that haven't existed before. That's a mufti and a mushtahid. It's not very easy to be like that. When he was 21 years old, he became that mufti. And he said, Imam Malik, he said, I did not give any fatwa I did not begin giving fatwa until I had 70 great scholars who had qualified me. How many great scholars? And we're not talking about just any person, like what, when you bring people along and they vote. 70 people. Who thinks Imam Malik can give a fatwa? And then you get the laymen or common people like us. No. These were 70 of the greatest imams, fuqaha, jurisprudence, uh, scholars of Medina. 70 who qualified him to be ready. They said, you are now ready to make your, derive your own opinions, obviously based on dalil, from raw Qur'an and raw hadiths. That's something beyond measure. And I uh, am very sad to see that a lot of people these days, and a little bit in the past as well, very quick to give fatwas 
And they like calling people over to them. And to, to answer questions. Any question that comes up and they feel embarrassed. If someone asks them a question they can't answer it, they have to make up something. Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever lies on my tongue deliberately, let them earn or preserve their place in hellfire. And I'm going to come back to that, inshallah, a little bit later on about giving fatwas by these imams, what they thought of it. The second clarification I wanted to make from last week's topic, I mentioned that there was a group of people in Kufa, in Iraq, new group of people with a new, strange, dangerous idea that were called the Khawarij. I mentioned that one of their beliefs was that they would say that a person is a kafir by merely committing any sin at all, even a minor sin. And I gave some examples. I'd like to correct that by saying it wasn't a minor sin. They made a person a kafir only when they did a major sin, like drinking of alcohol or zina. Just uh, to clarify that, and uh, knowledge is, uh, belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We only use what we can, and we have to be very careful. If we make a mistake, we correct it. My brothers and sisters in Islam, I'd like to start by saying there were many schools of thought in history. These madhahib, when you talk about Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, and Hanbali, people who say these things, there were actually many schools of thought under great imams. But for some reason, they were short-lived because of some political reasons or other reasons. And it was amazing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed these four schools of thought to remain until today. The Hanafi madhab, Maliki madhab, Shafi'i madhab, and Hanbali madhab. Some of the examples of short-lived madhabs of the past were people like, led by uh, Shaykh Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, and the Layth ibn Sa'ad, and Awza'i, etc., etc. These names, you probably haven't heard of them, but they were schools of thought that existed. And when you hear about, I don't know if you heard about your parents or grandparents, or some people around in the community who assume that if a man, for example, has physical contact with a woman, uh, then he loses his wudu, or the woman has any physical contact, just a touch, shaking of the hand, they lose their wudu. Uh, obviously, scholars differed on that, but Imam uh, Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, who was a teacher of Abu Hanifa, he is the one who began this opinion. That was his opinion, based on his own dalil. He saw this. And it made its way into the Hanafi school of thought somehow. Now first also, I'd like to say that my references for this, where do I get all my information from? Some people ask me. There are many books, but unfortunately in English you can't find many of them that talk about the lives of these four Imams in English. The best one that I found that talks in English, what I found, was one called The Four Imams, Lives, Works and Schools of Thought by Muhammad Abu Zahra. That's in English. And it's okay, it's good in the English language. But other books I used were books like Seer Alam al-Nubala, the biography of the noble emblems. And that's only in Arabic, I don't know if it's in English. A great book about the great uh, predecessors. And also a book called The Four Imams by Mustafa Shaka. I also used various lectures of historians and imams uh, from around the world just to see their view on, on the subject. I also used a little bit of Tariq al-Tabari. I don't know if you know about that. It has information that's authentic and information that I don't, don't know where it came from. And some of it boggles your mind sometimes. But these imams used to mention everything. The good thing about them is that they always mentioned where they got this information from, who narrated it by who, and they gave their opinion about its authenticity. But they still mention it so that you know. I'm not sure which imam taught his son 30,000 
hadiths. And after he memorized the 30,000 hadiths with all their narrations, he said to him, Son, now it's time to learn the authentic hadiths. All these 30,000 were unauthentic. And we're talking about hundreds of years ago. So what about us poor people today? Alhamdulillah, we have great scholars who have, mem- who have looked over these hadiths and these narrations. And I think today we have a lot of information, a lot of authenticity, alhamdulillah. Scholars went over and over them again. Imam Malik ibn Anas. We'll have to hurry it up for the time, insha'Allah. And the theme is the word of Allah. The ones who truly fear their Lord are the scholars. When you know Allah more, you fear Him more. And the fear that I'm talking about is God consciousness. God consciousness, righteousness, iman. They did the good, even the tiniest of good, and they stayed away from the tiniest of bad out of fear of Allah and out of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the ulama. And we are not talking about knowledgeable people who know information. Able to regurgitate information and tell you this information. No, these are not ulama, these are not knowledgeable people. You've got criminals who are very good at hacking the NASA station, if you like. Very good at hacking internet, you know, networks. Very good at doing all these sorts of things. And they've got, they are extremely knowledgeable in their area of programming and, and the sorts. But are they ulama? No. When we talk about ulama, we talk about morals and character before information. Imam Malik ibn Anas. I compare him to Imam Abu Hanifa in this way. If I were to, to describe both of them with a title, I would say that Imam Abu Hanifa's title for me would be the intellectually sharp and the loving. He's very loving and intellectually sharp. The way I would describe Imam Malik in one title would be that he was a man of aura, a man of absolute respect, meaning... I don't mean that, I mean every scholar was a man of aura, but when I talk about Imam Malik, Imam Malik had features that Allah had created for him. He was a tall man, wide-chested, broad-chested man, wide eyes, strong-looking man, and he was blonde hair, white face, and some narrations say he had blue eyes. His beard was long until it reached his chest. He wore the most elegant and eloquent clothing. And this is what he differed with the other imams in. Is that he loved wearing eloquent clothing of the best kinds. When you looked at him, even if you didn't know that he was an imam, his features strike you. And you find something inside of you forcing you to respect this man. We call this in Arabic, Haybah, an aura, the man of aura. This man, Imam Malik ibn Anas, his father was a tabi'i. We said tabi'i means that a person who met sahabas and died after they met them and believed in them. Imam Malik was a tabi'i tabi'i. He met the people who met the sahabas. His grandfather, the grandfather of Imam Malik, His name was Malik ibn Anas as well. And he was a tabi'i. And his great-grandfather was a sahabi. His name was Abu Amr. His grandfather Malik ibn Anas was a friend of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. And he was one of those who made copies of the Qur'an after the battle with Musaylam when a lot of uh, memorizers of the Qur'an had been killed. He was one of those who carried the body of Uthman radiallahu anhu to the Baqiyah. 
and he lived till the time of the Khalifa Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and he died when his great grandson Imam Malik our hero tonight was only seven years old Imam Malik started his knowledge at the age of ten years there is no limit to when a person starts his education knowledge there is no limit to how far they keep learning and when I talk about starting ten years in those days, the children of those days were not like today. And unfortunately, the society and state we live in makes people, teenagers, or 16, 17, 20 years old, seem like they're still children. Ah, oh, they're just teenagers, let them have a good time. Let them go on a little bit of drugs, have a good time and drink some alcohol, hang out with a few girls, go to the nightclubs. They're just teenagers. And when they hit 18, when they hit 18, they start their alcohol and stuff and they make it legal for them, as though they now become responsible when they haven't even raised them on responsibility. In those days, you're talking about 10-year-old, was like a 20-year-old today. Imam Malik at 10 years of age started his knowledge. And he spent his whole life in Medina, Medina al-Sharif, Medina al-Munawwara, in the land of the Prophet ﷺ. He never left Medina al-Munawwara his entire life. Only to Mecca when he went and did Hajj or Umrah. In fact, not only did he ever never leave Medina al-Munawwara in his life until he died, and he lived for 90 years. 90 years he lived. Never left Medina al-Munawwara. He never even... He never even... He never even rode on a camel or any transport vehicle in his entire life when he was living in Medina. Does anyone know why? Because in his wara, in his righteousness and love for the Prophet ﷺ and as a role model, he saw benefiting fitting in himself as the scholar of Medina to always have his feet stuck to the ground of the land where the body of the Prophet ﷺ is buried. He saw it disrespectful as an imam representing his deen in the highest esteem to lift himself off the ground out of respect for the Messenger ﷺ while his body was in the ground. Never in his life did he ever lift his legs off the ground? Can you imagine that? 90 years. Except when he went to Hajj or Mecca outside of Medina. When the Khulafa, the rulers, when he went to meet them, and the rulers were in Iraq, in Baghdad and Kufa and those areas, he never left to see them there. Whenever he wanted to give them advice, he waited when they came to Hajj, to Mecca. If he was there, he'd meet them in their residential palaces. And when they came to Medina, he would go to the residential palaces and meet them there and advise them. He never went to a ruler for any need for himself or for any need of that ruler. So he never responded to a ruler to come for a need of that ruler. And never did he go there to ask for something. The only time he ever went to the rulers or officials was for only one reason. Was to advise them when they had erred. And this is the trait of all the imams. All the scholars and especially the four imams. My brothers and sisters, the four Imams, even though they differed in some opinions of branches of the branches of the religion, branches of the branches, we're talking about where to place your hand, we're talking about what breaks your wudu in, in minute detail. We're talking about things like, uh, if I want to send my udhiyah, is it better to send it to my relatives, or is it better to send it to poor people, and they had differences of opinion, like that. Nothing major at all. The problem is that Muslims today, we, we make it major, and even in those days, there came a time, we'll talk about inshallah later on, where people got so obsessed with their madhab, it became like a, a cult. That in Mecca itself, they prayed four jama'ahs behind four imams because they were behind four different madhabs. This is division. 
There is a difference between difference of opinion and division. The scholars, even the Sahabas, had differences of opinions, but they did never divide it. And those of you, who, those of us who divide based on that, wallahi, you do not know the scholars, the imams at all. You don't know their teachers because they respected each other. They followed each other. They took from each other. They conversed with each other and they learned from each other. And a lot of them, their scholars and their teachers were each other's teachers. They learned off each other. So it's, uh, it's ignorance, no matter how much information you know, to cause division in your knowledge. If your knowledge is causing division in the people and this is your action, then you have no knowledge. So Imam Malik was one of those. To talk a little bit more about him, he was born in the year 93 Hijri in Medina, about the year 760. And he died in the year 179 Hijri, 86 or 90 years old. And they all followed each other in the way they were born. He met Imam Shafi'i. And he met the great students of Imam Abu Hanifa, Al-Qadi Abu Yusuf, and others, and learnt off them. His father was a handicapped man. He was handicapped uh, in part of his body, paralyzed. And he earned a decent living making arrows. But his father was a muhaddith. He was a great scholar as well. So he came from a line of, of, of great scholars, Imam Malik. Unlike Abu Hanifa, who number one, learned his knowledge later, when he was about 20, Imam Malik learned it at 10. Unlike Abu Hanifa, Abu Hanifa stumbled on learning knowledge. He was passing by, as we said last week, and uh, the Imam uh, al-Shaybani, he saw him, and he said to him, where are you going? He said, I'm going on business. He said, no, 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 business, don't distract yourself with business. I can see intelligence in your face. And he swerved him, he made him come into knowledge. Imam Malik was not like that. Imam Malik lived the life of religion in the Masajid from, a, from his childhood. And there was a turnaround point in his life in how he went into knowledge. Very interestingly, I'd like to say that his father play, played a role in his turnaround, but his mother played the biggest role. And I hope the sisters are listening to this. The mother of Imam Malik is the person who charted the future of Imam Malik. She is the one. You know how they say behind every great man is a great woman? I'm not talking about husband and wife. We're talking about mother and child. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. His brothers and sisters. He had uh, three brothers and one sister. One of his brothers, his older brother by the name of Nadir ibn Anas, he was the man of knowledge. In Medina, everybody talked about his older brother Al-Nadir as being the most knowledgeable. Right up to the point where Imam Malik became afterwards the most knowledgeable and his brother Al-Nadir was forgotten about. They never said, they used to say, Malik the brother of Imam Al-Nadir. When Imam Malik reached his position by the will of Allah, they started calling Al-Nadir, Al-Nadir the brother of Imam Malik. The, the other way around. His upbringing Imam Malik had a boyish upbringing. He, had a, he was a cheeky little boy when he was a child. And he didn't listen to his parents much. They had a bit of a hard time with him. We say in Arabic, He had pigeons and he used to herd pigeons. That's what he used to do as a child. And uh, he liked mucking around a lot as a child. Very active. But he had 
from a young age, this, this Haber didn't like people messing around with him. He got angry at, uh, at, uh, when his honor was broken, but his anger was always maintained and, ch and, and channeled by his mother. The story begins like this. Imam Malik was about 9 or 10 years old. When he was sitting at the dinner table, or the, dining, the dinner uh, sitting, they used to sit on the floor around, and they used to always share dinner. His father, and I want you to watch something very carefully about how parents brought their children up. His father tested his children with a fiqh question. Fiqh means knowledge of the Islam in things that we practice. Your prayers, your wudu, uh, inheritance, uh, riba, all these things are in fiqh. Understanding of the laws in every way. So he asked the fiqh question. Uh, and Imam, he asked it to Imam Malik. Malik didn't know the answer. But his older brother knew the answer quickly. And this, his father said to Malik, Al-Haq al-Hamamu al-Ilm. The pigeons distracted you from knowing knowledge. And this struck Imam Malik right in the heart as a child. It angered him. But his anger was channeled, as I said. It angered him to make a decision. Not to fight with his brother or to get jealous. This anger, a Muslim mu'min's anger is directed in a different way. The anger was the motivation to make him look forward, be optimistic and choose a pathway to make something out of himself. So this anger made him think of becoming a knowledge. And that was one aspect of maybe of which caused his turnaround, turn, turning point. The other aspect was that his mother, when she saw that he was angry, she took him and made him take a shower. Then she dressed him with really nice clothing. And she put perfume on him and she made him look really ready, well-groomed, presentable in the highest esteem. And he, she said to him, you are going, I'm going to take you to learn knowledge behind the Imams in Medina. He said, but mother, I want to become a singer. Would you believe that? Imam Malik, he wanted a career as a musician to become a singer. He had a nice voice. But his mother, now I want the mothers to listen again, the fathers. She didn't say things like, no, it's haram, son, or you shouldn't do that. Nor did she say, oh, that's a good one. It's a you know, money-making career. You should do it. Good on you. Let me hear your voice. No, no, no. His mother was very smart and wise. A child needs to be taught and fed with a spoon. You need to have patience. You need to repeat your words lots and lots of times. Have patience with them. So instead of saying all these things, this is what she said. Malik, you know, singing is not just about the voice. Singing comes with good looks. And you don't have it. You don't have good looks. You don't have it. You don't have what it takes. So, you know, the X Factor and the, uh, I don't know, the Australian Idol and all that, you know, they never pass someone with the most magnificent voice. This is what I, people were always telling me, unless they had the look with it. And what kind of a look will in these days they want for singers? I'm talking about hundreds of years ago. I'm talking about about a you know, hundred or, or so years after the Prophet ﷺ. This is what singers were always about. You have to come with the look because people have to look at you. Otherwise, your voice means nothing. So this, you know, made him become demotivated. So I haven't got the look. Yeah, a child believes his mum. He doesn't know anything about looks. A child. They haven't got the look. Even though Imam Malik was very good looking. But his good looks was one of respect. It wasn't the one of attraction that made you look at him and think, oh, how gorgeous he is. No, it was like, he's a good looking man, but uh, I wouldn't dare to tell him that.
It was like that. He was very, had that aura, as I said before. So she took him to the Medina, Masjid al-Nabawi. Over there he found, he saw, 70 Imams giving 70 different classes at once. That's how Medina was. It was a university. That's how universities were. From dawn till dusk, 70 classes happening at one time. And sometimes there would be hundreds of ulama in there at, um, coming and going through there. This masjid had the tabi'een and the tabi'a tabi'een over there. Huge university. She chose for him a particular scholar. She deliberately chose him. She chose a, a, an imam by the name of Rabi'a ibn Abdurrahman. I don't have time to go into his story. It's, he's got a very fabulous story. Maybe one day we'll talk about him. But Rabi'a is the one who is known today, abbreviated as Rabi'atul Ra'i. Rabi'a of opinion. He, he, he had really good opinions based on knowledge. Very good in deducing things. And you know, Rabi'a ibn Abdurrahman is forgotten now. When someone earns a title, magnificence, they give him a magnificent name, and he no longer needs to say the surname and his lineage anymore. So now he's called Rabi'atul Ra'i. Rabi'atul Ra'i. Like uh, Alexander the Great. There are many Alexanders, but when you say Alexander the Great, you know who we're talking about, yeah? So um, he was Rabi'atul Ra'i, the garden of the best opinions. Imam Malik studied under him, and he, Rabi'atul Ra'i, studied under what we call the seven fuqaha of Medina. I'm not going to go into that, but there were seven fuqaha were the third layer of scholars. There was the Rasul Sallallahu the second layer were the Sahabas, and then the third layer were the Tabi'een who were called the seven fuqaha of Medina. And the fourth layer are the four Imams. They sit in the fourth layer. This is, this is uh, called the... Tabaqat al-Ulama or Tabaqat al-Fuqaha The layers of scholars, known layers that are known among the scholars. I'm not going to go into Rabi'ah too much, but Imam Malik did learn of how to deduce opinion based on knowledge. His mother advised him the following advice. I want everybody to listen to this advice. Very important. Fathers and especially mothers. And especially those who want to learn knowledge of Islam. The first thing his mother said to him was this. She looked him in the eye and said to him, Son, I put you with this imam not just so you can learn his knowledge. Before you learn his knowledge, I want you to learn his adab, his morals and his character. There's a story about a, uh, a Jewish man who was a very uh, Jewish man, Jewish scribe. I forgot his name, but he, uh, he learned knowledge in the same way. He used to go to his scholar in another land. And when he used to go to this scholar, and the scholar would say to him, Jewish scholar, say, which Torah, you know, which part of the Torah do you want to learn? He would say, I didn't come to learn the Torah, the information. I used to go to see how this scholar ties his shoes. You understand what I'm talking about? Students of knowledge learn the adab, the morals of the person. So these students used to watch every pattern of work that these scholars did. They looked at the way they looked, the way they sat, the way they moved, the way they dressed, the way they ate. Just like people look at celebrities. They didn't just learn the knowledge, ikhwan, brothers and sisters. Which is sad to see that in our days, we have two problems. People who learn knowledge, they separate themselves from good character and good morals. And their knowledge becomes debate and argumentation which causes division. And there are even people of knowledge who forget the morals and character and things like riyat showing off become their target and position and so on. And then we have things like government scholars and the likes. 
And this is, wallahi, very sad. The very unique thing about these four imams and the imams of those times, different to the imams of today, is that those imams were self... They survived on their, on their own income. And, they were, and this made them very powerful. They did not survive on the state. They did not rely on any state or organization or masjid to provide them. They worked. Imam Malik, he had his own humble business of selling clothes. Imam Malik al-Asmahi from Yemen. He, he sold clothes and he survived on that. The other way he survived, he accepted gifts from the ruler. But he never took a person. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Because the other Imams never accepted gifts, but Imam Malik did. Very interesting. If we have time, inshallah, to talk about his philosophy. When he went with these uh, scholars, he was a bit, as I said, naughty as a teenager. But his mischievousness, when he was naughty, I'll give you an example. Uh, he used to try and play a game to win the scholar all for himself. So he used to bring some dates and stuff, and he would assign some of his mates, his friends in the class, and he would say, I'll give you some dates to persuade the students to go back home today. So they'd go back home, and he'd be one with him or one or two people with this teacher, and so he'd have this teacher all for himself. And that's where Imam Malik began. He was a vessel of knowledge. He was so much so that he assisted, he was like, you know what we call a teacher's pet. That's what he was. And that wasn't looked down upon in those days. Nor was it looked down upon to someone saying, my mother influences me. My mother directs me. Today, they use an ugly name called Mummy's Boy. And Teacher's Pet. These are names to deter people away from knowledge and learning. Al-Ummu Madrasa, as the poet says, The mother is an educational institution. If you look after her, you have prepared a generation to come full of esteem and knowledge and, and charisma and, and everything, wisdom. So he was a teacher's pet, mummy's boy, if you like. I'm not afraid to say that. And he loved hadith, he loved his teachers. He's, he used to stand outside and wait for his teachers in the, in the heat of the sun. In Medina, it's not like here, you know, clouds, it was, it was hot. And he used to endure. For example, one time he, used to, he waited for his imam outside on a very hot rock. And he sat out there in the sun, not like you know, today, no one has respect for the imam. They ask him, left, right and center, everyone overloads each other and they overload the imam. No, no, he used to sit there, not even knock on his door. He'd wait for an hour, sometimes two hours, three hours in the heat of the sun, right in the middle of the dhuha when everyone else was at home. And he'd wait for his imam. And uh, one of his imams, Imam Ibn, uh, Ibn uh, Hurmuz, which is I'm going to talk about as a second imam, he never liked people to stop him and ask him questions except at the time of his dars. Because he had to organize his time, otherwise it will be mayhem. But Imam Malik didn't settle for that. He tried to always work his way around. So he'd wait on that rock and when the Imam came out, he'd see him. And he'd rush after him very secretly. And the first thing he would do is he would say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. The Imam has to say, wa alaikum assalam. This is how we began his introduction. Now, first time, he's not going to ask him a question, just salams. So now he's start his introduction's there. They'd go and pray the dhuhr, and after the dhuhr, he'd follow him again. Say, Assalamu alaikum, ya Imam. He's got a pen and, and a tablet. They didn't have papers like this. They had this rock stuff and uh, bark and everything. And he would say, yeah, Imam, just about that, mas about that hadith, can you just uh, narrate that to me again? And about this, mas he tried to get as many as he can from that Imam. And the Imam would have to answer him, you know, as he was walking by. So that's what he used to do. He excelled in, and mastered in his knowledge. But his sister became worried that, you know, he used to stand a lot of, day, a lot of hours in the sun. Sometimes he'd come back really sunburnt. And his sister got worried. He says, you know, Dad, you know, his older sister, my, my brother, he's always standing outside. He was only about like, we're talking about 12 years old, 
13 years old, standing outside in the heat of the sun. Her father said to her, don't worry, daughter, he'll be all right. He is learning the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Let him endure. My brothers and sisters, not every alim, not every person has to study the way of the imams, the knowledge of fiqh. There are people who study other things, maths and engineering, astronomy. We all have the fundamentals of the deen, we all have to know. Not everyone has to be a faqih, okay? But uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this in the Quran, that you know, not all people are destined to learn the same thing. We all help and assist each other. If it wasn't for, for example, Salman al-Farisi, in the battle of Khandaq, the Muslims would have been destroyed. If he hadn't come with new ideas and innovations of building a trench. So if everyone was a faqih and a knowledgeable scholar in Islam, who will build the buildings and who will help us defend ourselves and all this technology and so on and so forth. My brothers and sisters in Islam, <clears throat> Imam Malik learnt of his first teacher, Rabi'atul Ra'i, for seven whole years dedicated to him. After that, he started with the famous Imam Abdullah ibn Hurmuz. Abdullah ibn Hurmuz, and he stayed with him for eight years. Abdullah ibn Hurmuz was an ex-servant slave. And remember we mentioned last, year, last week that the majority of the scholars and the imams that taught our imams, they were, they were migrants from other places and they converted to Islam. And they were mawalim, which means that they were servant slaves of tabi'in or, or sahabis. Ibn Hurmuz was one of those who was a freed slave. And he was the teacher of Imam Malik. Every Sahabi, he was, he was a servant of a servant of a companion. And notice, my brothers and sisters, every Sahabi who had a servant, that servant became a master of knowledge of Islam. And Quraysh people, you know, Quraysh from the family, from the lineage of the Prophet, from his family, from the tribe of Quraysh, they're like of esteem, high esteem. They used to come and humble themselves, these Arab Quraysh and sit in the circle classes of these mawali, these ex-slaves who were freed. So there is always humility and humbleness in knowledge. No one is better than another. So much so, brothers and sisters, I'm going to surprise you with something. Imam Malik, he got married to one wife. Again, uh, sisters are happy about that because I mentioned Abu Hanifa last week. He was married to one wife and he had one son. Imam Malik had one wife and he had three sons and one daughter. His three sons were okay, they weren't really into knowledge. Especially one of his sons, the oldest one, he, 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 was, he didn't like knowledge at all. He never listened to his father about coming to knowledge. He was Kashish Hanam. He took up the pigeon, herding pigeons as well. And he never liked knowledge. And Imam Malik used to say to his son, Son, people are coming to me from Spain and Khurasan and coming from Africa and coming from all parts of the world, from China, on foot. Traveling four months, six months journey to come and take the knowledge from your, the, your father. Just come away from the pigeons and listen to one of my circles. And his son just never did. He, he never had that, that gift. He never had that, that motivation. And this tells us that you know, not every child has the gift. And to take it easy, some parents, they want their children to be a particular thing. Don't worry. Not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put mawhibah, gifts in certain people which you didn't give to others. Just try and see which skill they best fit in and encourage them in that skill to exceed and excel in that. So long as that skill or that interest that he wants or she wants is not haram. So long as it's halal. Help them and motivate them, brothers and sisters. This is the will of Allah, otherwise we cannot be a community. Uh, Nuh alayhi salam's son was a kafir. You know? What could he do? He was a prophet. Amazingly, out of his children, the one who became a scholar was his daughter. She was the one. 
Allah says in the Quran, Enough. He gives whoever he wants boys and he gives whoever he wants girls as daughters. You will never know which one is more beneficial, the boy or the girl. Here it was the girl. She memorized the whole of the book of Imam Malik, which is called Al-Muwatta. And we'll come to that very quickly. Full of hadiths and narrations and to the point where she used to correct her father's students. When her father was tired, he'd tell his daughter to test them. And whenever they made a mistake behind the door, she'd knock and correct them and tell her father they've made a mistake in this narration, in this chain. So his daughter was the one. Amazing. His mother charted his <coughs> future and his daughter <coughs> inherited. And Imam Malik, funny that I said inherited, I don't say inherited, she took it off him, but Imam Malik, when he saw his son, the one with pigeons, he used to look at him and say, Subhanallah, Allah who did not make knowledge an inheritance. You know, you can't just be born knowledgeable from a knowledgeable person. So Imam Malik had these famous teachers, Rabi'atul Ra'i and Imam Ibn Hurmuz. He graduated after eight years from Ibn Hurmuz's school and he became his friend, continued for 30 whole years. Ibn Hurmuz went over to Egypt and lived there the rest of his life. And Imam Malik kept on with correspondence between him and his friend the Imam until the Imam died. And Imam Malik never saw uh, his friend after that, those 30 years. And he was sad that he didn't meet him after that. There is another Imam that he learned of, his name was Imam Zuhri. And this Imam Zuhri. I'll tell you a really interesting story about Imam Malik with him. It was Eid time. And as students in Eid, they go and celebrate. Imam Malik, what's he doing? In the morning after Salat al-Eid, he's going to the house of Imam al-Zuhri. He hasn't even eaten yet. And he went with his books and his pen, and he waited outside the house of Imam al-Zuhri. He was about 16 years old at that time. And he waited and waited and waited. And there was a servant of Imam al-Zuhri. She saw Imam Malik outside. And she told Imam Zuhri about him. She said, he asked her, who is it? And they used to call him the blonde boy. She said he was the blonde boy. And he said, let him in. So he came inside and Imam Zuhri thought that, you know, he's coming to eat the Eid food with him. So the Imam put in front of Malik. And Imam Malik looked at it and said, I don't want food. He said, what do you mean? You know, then why are you here? He said, tuhadithni. Teach me. Tell me hadith. When you say hadith, we're talking about hadith, or the chain of narrators and its men and everything. He said he sat down and he taught him 40 hadiths with their chain of narrations. And the imam's writing it. Then the imam said, Zidni, teach me more. And he said to him, Imam Zawri, go first and learn these and then come back, I'll teach you more. He said, I've learned them. He said, really? He said, yes. He said, give me it. Gave it to him, he says, tell me. And he said them all with their chain of narrations without a single mistake at all, just by writing them once. When he did that, Imam Azuri looked at him and he said, Qum, stand up. A person like you shouldn't be sitting, should stand. Because Imam should stand at honoring him. Stand before me. And he said to him, Qum fa'anta min al-ilm. Stand, for you are one of the vessels of knowledge. You are one of the exceptions, which Allah made. And that's what Imam Malik 
was. So as we said before, at the age of 21 years, he was qualified to give fatwa. New verdicts about new issues that had never happened before. <laughs> it's very sad to see people today calling themselves muftis and bang, they're muftis all of a sudden. They learn a few hadiths or they maybe uh, graduate after learning a couple of years or even graduate muftis. They can give new verdicts of new issues and <coughs> we have this problem, unfortunately. Some people don't even know Arabic language yet and they're ready to give fatwas very quickly. My brothers and sisters in Islam, I'm going to cut a few things. I can't really talk about everything, although there are many interesting things. But what I would like to say is Imam Malik was really qualified and witnessed by many Imams as one of the greatest. Imam Shafi'i, for example, said about him, If it wasn't for Sufyan ibn Uyayna, who was one of the close student friends, of Imam Malik, they studied together. And if it wasn't for Imam Malik, knowledge in Hijaz, which is the Arab Peninsula, would cease in Medina. That's what Imam Shafi said about him. The special characteristic between Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa was that Abu Hanifa's students were mostly people of Iraq. Kufa, Basra, and those areas. Imam Malik's students came from all over the world. Do you know why? Not because we're saying Imam, Hanifa, Imam Malik is better than Abu Hanifa. No, no, no. Imam Malik was in Medina. And people who went to Hajj and Umrah from all over the world passed through Medina, the grave of the Prophet ﷺ, as we see today. So people of the world went to Mecca and Medina. So it was coincidental this way that Imam Malik became more popular throughout the world in his time and quicker than Imam Abu Hanifa. Even though Imam Abu Hanifa later on became more popular till today. Till today he's actually more, more famous and popular in his mother. But Imam Malik spread very quickly and much more rapidly throughout the world than Imam Abu Hanifa in his time because of that. The third teacher of Imam Malik was a man by the name of Nafi' al-Daylami. He was Mawla, they call him Mawla ibn Umar. He was the ex-slave of Abdullah, the son of Umar radiallahu anhuma. And Abdullah ibn Umar, he taught this man Nafi', a very important figure in our, our scholars of history of scholars. And he freed him. And Imam Nafi' was one of the teachers, the third teacher of Imam Malik. Imam Malik was one of those who narrated hadith. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you read a hadith, there's something called the sanad, which is the text, the, uh, sorry, the, the nas, which means the text, and the sanad, which is the chain of narration. You know, not like I say, you know, on the authority of Abu Huraira, yada, 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 and Imam Muslim collected it. No, no, no. When these people read hadith, if you read their books, like if you go to Tafsir ibn Kathir, for example, I used to read it when I was younger and... and I say, man, I just want to know the hadith. I read the whole page. Sometimes, wallahi, half a page. So-and-so who heard so-and-so, but this man maybe didn't hear it from this man. And it's said about this man that maybe he didn't reach this man. But I say that he did because of this, who reached this man. And finally, the hadith comes in one sentence. The whole page, one sentence. And then they put the comments of the scholars about the strength of this hadith. This is when these scholars said hadith, this is how they said it. They didn't just say what I'm saying. <coughs> Prophet said, <coughs> All actions are judged by intentions and so on. No, no, not like that. 
They came and they started. Narrated, narrated by so-and-so and so-and-so and this and that and that. So this is when I'm talking about knowledge here. Imam Malik had something very significant that is known till today. He had something called the golden chain. as silsilat al-Zahabiyyah. Any hadith of the Prophet that had the following chain. From Malik, who heard it from Nafi', who heard it from Ibn Umar, who heard it from the Prophet If you see that chain before any hadith, Malik, heard it from Nafi', heard it from Ibn Umar, who heard it from the Prophet the scholars unanimously say this is the strongest chain of narration to exist in any form of hadith. They call it the golden chain. And Imam Malik narrated, as far as I can remember, subhanAllah, he narrated many, many hadiths that we go by today. Hundreds of hadiths that we go by today. His fourth teacher was Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri. He was a great tabi'i. He's the one that he went to his house on Eid, as we said before. His fifth teacher was Ja'far al-Sadiq. Ever heard of him? Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq. Even though some of his followers today uh, misinterpret his teachings and they say things about him that are not true. Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq was a teacher and a friend of Imam Abu Hanifa. And there is a school of thought called the Ja'fari Madhab. And Imam Ja'far narrated nine hadiths that are mentioned in the book of Imam Malik al-Muwatta. Ja'far was the grandson of Ali radiallahu anhu. And he was a very important figure who was the teacher of Imam Malik. I just want to mention one of Imam Ja'far's very famous quotes. I think it's very beneficial to us about Qada and Qadar, which Imam Malik also adopted. Listen to this. For those of you who talk about, you know, who worry about the future and destiny, what Allah has written for you in the unknown. He said, Very simple terms. He said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destined for us things and He made them unknown. And he wanted from us things. What he destined us for, he made it unknown to us. And what he wanted from us, he showed it to us. So why do you have to sit there and thinking of the future? The unknown, brothers and sisters. Don't think of the unknown. Don't worry about the unknown and ask questions of the unknown. Think and worry about what you have that is known and work with it. Imam Malik, my brothers and sisters, he was a mushtahid as we said. I want to talk a little bit about his personality a little bit more. I said that he was uh, tall, handsome, good looking. He dressed in the most beautiful of dressing. I'm talking about he dressed in all the brands. He used to buy deliberately brands from Yemen and Khurasan and different places to wear them. Different brands. You might be thinking now, what, what's this? He's very unique in that way. He differed from all the scholars of the four imams in this, in this thing. He loved to dress very pleasantly, eloquently and beautifully. Designer clothes. It says that one of his garments, one of his thoves was worth 500 dinars. That's a lot of money in those days. That's a tremendous amount of money in those days. And he wore a ring. It was a silver ring and he had a black stone on this ring which said, 
and was written on this ring, Hasbi Allah wa ni'mal wakil. Enough for me is Allah, and what a beautiful one to rely upon. He had that written on his silver ring. He always bathed in the morning, he always smelled the best. Beautiful perfume, Imam Malik was known for that. And he had, a, he had an opinion, a philosophy slightly different to those who we call Zuhad, ascetics. It's mostly known in Sufism, attributed to Sufism. Although Sufism did not exist officially at the time of Imam Malik, it actually was, and some people might disagree with me, but historically I can prove it, hundreds, maybe a couple of hundred years after these Imams did Sufism become an official way. But the actions of what they call Sufism today, such as asceticism, meaning to abstain from the luxuries of the world, was practiced. It was practiced by Hassan al-Basri, it was practiced by Imam Abu Hanifa, even Imam Malik was in a certain way, and even by the Prophet And Sufism was actually practiced in the West as well, way before the Prophet himself, but in a more complex way. So Sufism came from the West actually. When they came and visited and invaded our lands hundreds of years later, and these ideas came and crept into us and we took some of their ideas. Now, some of the Sufis' ideas is excellent, mashallah, but some of the stuff that came from Greek theology, especially in Aqidah, such as the visiting of the graves and uh, seeking uh, saints' names and seeking their protection and their cure, is shirk and this came, unfortunately, from Greek philosophy and the rest. But Imam Malik, he was a Zahid, he was an ascetic, but how? His philosophy was opposite to the others. He said, Zuhud is on the inside, in the heart, not outward appearance. So much so that he used to have a soft handkerchief. He used to bring it with him. And when they asked him, why do you have a soft handkerchief, Imam? He says, because when he made sujood on the rocks of, of, uh, of Medina, you know, it was a harsh earth, not like today, beautiful carpet. They used to, people used to get the sign here on their forehead for sujood very quickly. And he realized that people uh, were showing this off. People get it and... And they weren't really, they didn't have the, the esteem of that. And they called this as a abid, he was a, a person, a worshipper, you know, away from the world. He didn't want that on his head. And he used to say, so that people don't get tricked and look at this, and just by looking at this sign saying, there goes a abid, there goes a great worshipper, a saint. He wanted to break that stereotype. And we see today that it's sort of revered, it's this, that when people have a, a mark here, we say, Oh, you know, it's a great habit. Some people, I remember in Lebanon when I was there, the older generation, when they go down to sujood, you could hear them hitting their head hard on the ground. And they used to sound like I could watch them as a child. They used to rub their heads, I could see, from sujood. And subhanAllah, I used to look at them and think, they're not really good examples of deen outside. And they used to say language that wasn't appropriate and do things... So it's not about this and it's not about that. Imam Malik wanted to break that stereotype. He was a man of a very strong personality. You know what I'm talking about? You know when some people, they do things to please people, right? And they know that it's slightly wrong or they would hide the truth. Imam Malik was not like that. He was exactly the opposite of that. He was a man that he used to say based on, on the dalil and he would say his opinion. If people like it, they like it. If they don't like it, bad luck. Go away. That's, that's, that was his attitude. In his circles, if anybody spoke while he is speaking, that would be that would be forbidden. Opposite to Abu Hanifa's circles, he used to encourage his students to discuss and debate. You see people talking on top of each other. He's like the modern day approach. And really it had to be like that for Abu Hanifa because he lived in Kufa where many ideologies were brought in. So he had to have discussion. 
As for Imam Malik who lived in Medina, the knowledge in Medina was different. It was quite strict and straightforward. And these ideologies of Khawarij and uh, Mu'tazila and Greek philosophy and uh, Aristotle's beliefs and stuff, they weren't in Medina. So Imam Malik was not interested in all those ideologies. Anyone who asked them, does Allah have a hand? Where is He? Which face is He directed? And all those thoughts, he never attempted to even answer them except in one way. Brief answers that made them be quiet, take it as it is and walk away. And I'll tell you a little story. One time he's sitting in his circles and a man entered. And he asked a question. He said, Ya Imam, I have a question. Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arsh istawa, the most merciful rose above his throne. What does rose above his throne mean? Istawa. Imam Malik, the student says, he put his head down and they could see sweat coming down his forehead out of anger. He was angry. Then he looked up and he said, Al-Istiwa'u ma'loom. Istiwa is not unknown to us. We know in Arabic what istiwa is. Aboveness, highness, above everything. Wal-kayfu majhool. But how is unknown. I don't know how above. It's not like our aboveness. But Allah is above, is not below. Was-su'alu anhu bid'a. And asking this question is an innovation. And then he looked at him and he said to his students, Akhrijuhu, get him out. They carried him out of the masjid quickly. And he said, Wala adhunnuka illa fattan aw mubtadi'a. I don't see you except an innovator or a mischievous person who wants to cause fitna. That's how we dealt with these issues. In his circles, he never allowed someone, he didn't like people asking, what's your dalil? I know that people think, what's this? Not asking me, what's the dalil? This was Imam Malik's philosophy. I'll tell you why. This man was the one who all around the world, people in Morocco, for example, they used to send their students to him in Africa. When they had a question, none of the scholars of those countries knew it. And they would say, Imam Malik is the most knowledgeable imam in the world. There isn't a world, an imam on the face of the earth more knowledgeable than him. Everybody said this. He was it. He was the man. And fa'alan, truly, even his teachers liked to discuss with him. <coughs> he was the man. And when, he, when they were asked, what's your dalil on complex issues? He didn't like it because they're asking him things which they don't understand themselves. And there's a story, a joke, a humorous story which I heard from one of the speakers. He said, actually read it as well, that uh, one particular imam said a hadith. Abu Huraira said this. And the students asked him, Imam, what's the chain of narration? He said, do you want to know the chain of narration? They're not muhaddithin. They don't know hadith. What's the chain of narration? He said, okay, if you want to know the chain of narration, عن أحمد عن محمد عن عبد عبد الرحمن عن عن He gave him chain of narration. Ahmed heard from Muhammad, heard from... And, he's, and they all wrote it down. And he said, are you satisfied? They said, yes. said, does anyone know who these narrators are? And some of them started to guess. Yeah, I know this person. They're guessing, right? And he said, uh, you're all wrong. That Ahmed is the neighbor next door to my house. And the second one is the baker down the road. And he just gave him any names. <laughs> just to go to show that. Imams know. When you want to ask Dalil, you've got to understand what Dalil is. You have to be at that caliber of that level of Dalil. We can ask certain Dalil. We can look at an Imam and say, Imam, you're a trustworthy person. This is a Muslim, you say. Can I look it up? The reference say, yes, it's a Muslim. And oh, that's it. You sit there asking all the detail as if, mashallah, you're a scholar now. How what would you understand about understanding Dalil? Black and white. We've got black and white rigid uh, ways. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Imam Malik loved bananas. He loved eating bananas. Seriously. And he had a balanced diet. 
He loved a healthy diet. He was a man, contrary to the others, ate meat every day. Because he used to say, when he was asked, why do you eat meat every day? He said, because it provides me strength in knowledge and I need it for the sake of Allah. He also ate a lot of fruit, again, for the vitamins and minerals. He loved bananas because he said, it is mentioned in the Qur'an, وَطَلْحِمْ mandud, it is the fruit of Jannah. And the fact that it's nice and it's smooth, he liked it. So every day I ate bananas. Which struck me the other day, I was thinking, subhanAllah, Imam Malik liked bananas. And what was interesting is that his madhab, his school of thought, it first started in Africa. And I heard, I was at a nikah the other day, and there were Somalians. And they love to eat with their food, any food, bananas. Meat, uh, I don't know your food, what it's called, all, every type, bananas. They eat their food, they eat the meat with the bananas, the rice with the bananas. Am I wrong? That's right. And I wondered, I wonder, I wondered if Imam Malik's, uh, you know, his character of liking bananas also went there, and that's how bananas began with their food. So Imam Malik was of that type. And it just goes to show that, brothers and sisters, you know, when people talk about you're not allowed to be wealthy, you're not allowed to be rich, you're not allowed to wear nice clothing, where did you get this from? And Imam Malik used to use two reasons. He said, number one, Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يُرَى أَثَرَ نِعْمَتِهِ عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ Allah loves to see the effect of His blessings on His servants. He also, another reason, I want to tell you something. Where he used to sit was the same spot where the Prophet ﷺ used to sit and teach. It was the same spot where Umar anhu, the Khalifa sat and taught. And guess this, he never in his life narrated a single hadith while standing. If he ever wanted to narrate a hadith, just say a hadith. I want you to listen to me carefully, brothers and sisters. Very important about those who throw their words very quickly, especially on the internet behind usernames, and no one knows who they are. Imam Malik, before he ever said one hadith, he'd go and have a shower, or he'd make wudu. Then he'd pray two rak'ahs. Then he'd wear the best of clothing, put on the best of perfume, enter the masjid quietly and would not say a word until serenity and peace befell him. Wallahi, I'm not exaggerating. This is what his students say. He went to the seat of the, where the Prophet used to sit and he sat there. Then he looked up at his students and he spoke the hadith with its narration. That's how Imam Malik narrated hadith. We're not talking about these scholars, these imams. You know what type of people we're talking about? Time is up, I know. I'll finish it here, subhanAllah. Maybe next week we'll finish the rest of it. I'll finish it with this. When we talk about these imams, brothers and sisters, even though Imam Malik, he, uh, he had a very humble home, but very, very neat. I don't think he was very wealthy. He rented his house all his life. He lived in rent. And the house he rented, was well, guess who it belonged to? It belonged to someone who bought it from someone who bought it from one of the Sahabas of the Prophet It was the house of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. That's the house he lived in. It was so neat. So decorated, the best of furniture, but he rented this house and he was not very wealthy. As I said, at one stage, he, tra- he was a bit tight on money. When I say tight, he preserved it for his education and for his students. He's, that's how the scholars, they, they, they looked after their students. It was so much so that the, he one time had to sell the wood in the ceiling of his house to make ends meet. So he stayed without a roof for a little while in the cause of education and knowledge. 
But the most important thing I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, again, as we started the theme, the ones who truly fear Allah and are righteous are the scholars. This man, as like Abu Hanifa and the rest, was full of something called wara'. Wara', which means that they abstained from even the smallest halal things, fearing that it may lead them to haram. And he was... And we were talking about, these people never knew alcohol, never knew cheating, never knew lying, never knew gambling, never knew backbiting, never knew jealousy, never knew envy, never knew even looking at someone hurting their feeling in any way. This is their lifestyle. And they were truly like angels. In every sense, every name of, in every sense of the word. They were truly like angels walking the earth. This is who we are talking about. I ended here, insha'Allah. And uh, just last thing I want to say about his house, so that we don't have to repeat it next week. Apart from his furniture inside, his door, he had a sign on his door, entrance, which said the following ayah. And when you enter your garden, your Jannah, say, Allah, Oh, what God will. So for those who say that I shouldn't hang up ayat, inshallah, it is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Imam Malik had it as a reminder for people who entered. But people could read it. It wasn't jumbled up. So that's what he had at the entrance. I finish here, insha'Allah, with this great Imam Malik, and insha'Allah next week we will continue it and move on to Imam Shafi'i and then Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. Hada wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in wa akhir da'wana alhamdulillah. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Rasulillah Allahumma salli ala Muhammad نبي الله اللهم صل على محمد رسول الله اللهم صل على محمد